The electric chair, special Halloween surprise. It's a dance song to get down with. About six feet under. Get there. Ooh, I love this song. Interval by Vincent O'Sullivan Mrs. Wilton passed through a little alley leading from one of the gates which are around Regent's Park and came out on the wide and quiet street. She walked along slowly, peering anxiously from side to side so as not to overlook the number. She pulled her furs closer around her. After her years in India, this London damp seemed very harsh. Still, it was not a fog today. A dense haze, gray and tinged ruddy, lay between the houses, sometimes blowing with a little wet kiss against the face. Mrs. Wilton's hair and eyelashes and her furs were powdered with tiny drops. But there was nothing in the weather to blur the sight. She could see the faces of people some distance off and read the signs on the shops. Before the door of a dealer in antiques and second-hand furniture, she paused and looked through the shabby, uncleaned window at an unassorted heap of things, many of them of great value. She read the Polish name fastened on the pane in white letters. Yes, this is the place. She opened the door, 
which met her entrance with an ill-tempered jangle. From somewhere in the black depths of the shop, the dealer came forward. He had a clammy white face, with a sparse black beard, and wore a skullcap and spectacles. Mrs. Wilton spoke to him in a low voice. A look of complicity, of cunning, perhaps of irony, passed through the dealer's cynical and sad eyes, but he bowed gravely and respectfully. "'Yes, she is here, madame. Whether she will see you or not, I do not know. She is not always well. She has her moods. And then we have to be so careful. The police, not that they would touch a lady like you, but the poor alien has not much chance these days.' Mrs. Wilton followed him to the back of the shop, where there was a winding staircase. She knocked over a few things in her passage and stooped to pick them up, but the dealer kept muttering, It does not matter. Surely it does not matter. He lit a candle. You must go up these stairs. They are very dark. Be careful. When you come to a door, open it and go straight in. He stood at the foot of the stairs, holding the light high above his head, and she ascended. The room was not very large, and it seemed very ordinary. There were some flimsy, uncomfortable chairs in gilt and red. Two large palms were in corners. Under a glass cover on the table was a view of Rome. The room had not a business-like look, thought Mrs. Wilton. There was no suggestion of the office or waiting room where people came and went all day. Yet you would not say that it was a private room which was lived in. There were no books or papers about. Every chair was in the place it had been placed when the room was last swept. There was no fire, and it was very cold. To the right of the window was a door covered with a plush curtain. Mrs. Wilton sat down near the table and watched this door. She thought it must be through it that the soothsayer would come forth. She laid her hands listlessly, one on top of the other, on the table. This must be the tenth seer she had consulted since Hugh had been killed. She thought them over. No, this must be the eleventh. She had forgotten that frightening man in Paris who said he had been a priest. Yet of them all, it was only he who told her anything definite. But even he could do no more than tell the past. He told of her marriage. He even had the duration of it right, twenty-one months. He told, too, of their time in India. At least he knew that her husband had been a soldier, and said he had been on service in the colonies. On the whole, though, he had been as unsatisfactory as the others. None of them had given her the consolations she sought. She did not want to be told of the past. If Hugh was gone forever, then with him had gone all her love of living, her courage, all her better self. She wanted to be lifted out of the despair, the dazed, aimless drifting from day to day, longing at night for the morning, and in the morning for the fall of night, which had been her life since his death. If somebody could assure her that it was not all over, that he was somewhere, not too far away, unchanged from what he had been here, with his crisp hair and rather slow smile and lean brown face, that he saw her sometimes, that he had not forgotten her. Oh, Hugh, darling! When she looked up again, the woman was sitting there before her. Mrs. Wilton had not heard her come in. With her experience wide enough now of seers and fortune-tellers of all kinds, she saw at once that this woman was different from the others. She was used to the quick appraising look, the attempts, sometimes clumsy, but often cleverly disguised, to collect some fragments of information whereupon to erect a plausible vision. But this woman looked as if she took it out of herself. Not that her appearance suggested intercourse with the spiritual world more than the others had done. It suggested that, in fact, considerably less. Some of the others were frail, yearning, evaporated creatures, and the ex-priest in Paris had something terrible and condemned in his look. He might well sup with the devil, that man, and probably did in some way or other. But this was a little, fat, weary-faced woman, about fifty, who only did not look like a cook because she looked more like a sempstress. 
Her black dress was all covered with white threads. Mrs. Wilton looked at her with some embarrassment. It seemed more reasonable to be asking a woman like this about altering a gown than about intercourse with the dead. That seemed even absurd in such a very commonplace presence. The woman seemed timid and oppressed. She breathed heavily and kept rubbing her dingy hands, which looked moist, one over the other. She was always wetting her lips and coughed with a little dry cough. But in her, these signs of nervous exhaustion suggested overwork in a close atmosphere, bending too close over the sewing machine. Her uninteresting hair, like a rat's pelt, was eked out with a false addition of another color. Some threads had gotten to her hair, too. Her harried, uneasy look caused Mrs. Wilton to ask compassionately, Are you much worried about the police? Oh, the police! Why don't they leave us alone? You never know who comes to see you. Why don't they leave me alone? I'm a good woman. I only think. What I do is no harm to anyone. She continued in an uneven, querulous voice, always rubbing her hands together nervously. She seemed to the visitor to be talking at random, just gabbling, like children do sometimes before they fall asleep. I want to explain, hesitated Mrs. Wilton. But the woman, with her head pressed close against the back of the chair, was staring beyond her at the wall. Her face had lost whatever little expression it had. It was blank and stupid. When she spoke, it was very slowly, and her voice was guttural. Can't you see him? It seems strange to me that you can't see him. He is so near you. He is passing his arm round your shoulders. This was a frequent gesture of Hughes, and indeed at that moment she felt that somebody was very near her, bending over her. She was enveloped in tenderness. Only a very thin veil, she felt, prevented her from seeing. But the woman saw. She was describing Hugh minutely, even the little things like the burn on his right hand. Is he happy? Oh, ask him, does he love me? The result was so far beyond anything she had hoped for that she was stunned. She could only stammer the first thing that came into her head. Does he love me? He loves you. He won't answer, but he loves you. He wants me to make you see him. He is disappointed, I think, because I can't. But I can't unless you do it yourself. After a while, she said, I think you will see him again. You think of nothing else. He is very close to us now. Then she collapsed and fell into a heavy sleep and lay there motionless, hardly breathing. Mrs. Wilton put some notes on the table and stole out on tiptoe. She seemed to remember that downstairs in the dark shop, the dealer with the waxen face detained her to show her some old silver and jewelry and such like. But she did not come to herself. She had no precise recollection of anything till she found herself entering a church near Portland Place. It was an unlikely act in her normal moments. Why did she go in there? She acted like one walking in her sleep. The church was old and dim, with high black pews. There was nobody there. Mrs. Wilton sat down in one of the pews and bent forward with her face in her hands. After a few minutes, she saw that a soldier had come in noiselessly and placed himself about half a dozen rows ahead of her. He never turned round, but presently she was struck by something familiar in the figure. First, she thought vaguely that the soldier looked like her Hugh. Then, when he put up his hand, she saw who it was. She hurried out of the pew and ran towards him. Oh, Hugh! Hugh! Have you come back? He looked round with a smile. He had not been killed. It was all a mistake. He was going to speak. Footsteps sounded hollow in the empty church. She turned and glanced down the dim aisle. It was an old sexton or verger who approached. I thought I heard you call, he said. I was speaking to my husband, but Hugh was nowhere to be seen. He was here a moment ago. She looked about in anguish. 
He must have gone to the door. There's nobody here, said the old man gently. Only you and me. Ladies are often taken funny since the war. There was one in here yesterday afternoon, said she was married in this church and her husband had promised to meet her here. Perhaps you were married here. No, said Mrs. Wilton desolately. I was married in India. It might have been two or three days after that, when she went into a small Italian restaurant in the Bayswater district. She often went out for her meals now. She had developed an exhausting cough, and she found that it somehow became less troublesome when she was in a public place looking at strange faces. In her flat there were all the things that Hugh had used. The trunks and bags still had his name on them, with the labels of places where they had been together. They were like stabs. In the restaurant, people came and went, many soldiers too among them, just glancing at her in her corner. This day, as it chanced, she was rather late, and there was nobody there. She was very tired. She nibbled at the food they brought her. She could almost have cried from the tiredness and loneliness and the ache in her heart. Then suddenly he was before her, sitting there opposite at the table. It was as it was in the days of their engagement, when they used sometimes to lunch at restaurants. He was not in uniform. He smiled at her and urged her to eat, just as he used in those days. I met her that afternoon as she was crossing Kensington Gardens, and she told me about it. I have been with Hugh. She seemed most happy. Did he say anything? N no, yes, I think he did, but I could not quite hear. My head was so very tired. The next time... I did not see her for some time after that. She found, I think, that by going to places where she had once seen him, the old church, the little restaurant, she was more certain to see him again. She never saw him at home, but in the street or the park, he would often walk along beside her. Once he saved her from being run over, she said she actually felt his hand grabbing her arm, suddenly, when the car was nearly upon her. She had given me the address of the clairvoyant, and it is through that strange woman that I know, or seem to know, what followed. Mrs. Wilton was not exactly ill last winter, not so ill, at least, as to keep to her bedroom, but she was very thin, and her great handsome eyes always seemed to be staring at some point beyond, searching. There was a look in them that seamen's eyes sometimes have when they are drawing on the coast, of which they are not very certain. She lived almost in solitude. She hardly ever saw anybody, except when they sought her out. To those who were anxious about her, she laughed and said she was very well. One sunny morning she was lying awake, waiting for the maid to bring her tea. The shy London sunlight peeped through the blinds. The room had a fresh and happy look. When she heard the door open, she thought that the maid had come in. Then she saw that Hugh was standing at the foot of the bed. He was in uniform this time, and looked as he had looked the day he went away. Oh, Hugh, speak to me. Will you not say just one word? He smiled and threw back his head, just as he used to in the old days at her mother's house, when he wanted to call her out of the room without attracting the attention of the others. He moved towards her, still signing to her to follow him. He picked up her slippers on his way and held them out to her as if he wanted her to put them on. She slipped out of bed hastily. It is strange that when they came to look through her things after her death, the slippers could never be found. I just moved in my new house today Moving was hard but I got squared away Bell started ringing and changed right loud I knew I'd moved in a haunted house Still I made up in my mind to stay Nothing was gonna 
drive me away When I seen something to give me the creep Had one big eye and a two big feet I stood right still and I did the freeze He did the stroll right up to me Made a noise with his feet to sound like a drum Say you'll be here when the morning comes Was really in the slidey coves did dire and gimble in the wave. All mimsy where the burrow goes and the moam rats outgrade. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumenous bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the mangzone foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulgy wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through, the vorpal blade went snicker-snack, he left it dead, and with its head he went to lumping back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy, O fragious day, kalu kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slidey toes did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy where the borough goes and the mome rats outbreed. There's a full moon in the pasture tonight. Hangs like a fine and polished pearl, so pure and white. The average guy finds so much beauty in its life, but I'm a workout. Innocent when 
A Name by Mark Slade Dana Grossman of 52 Fork Road raised a crooked finger to the phone book and touched a name with her long, jagged black fingernail. She smiled, her crooked teeth extended over her discolored bottom lip. Peterson Alva, 32 Lore Street. Mrs. Grossman paused, sniffed the putrid air that circulated in her dim apartment. Very little sun crept in through the molded blinds, 
From the far wall of her kitchen to her desk, where she always sat, were old dusty books piled nearly to the ceiling. She stood, her bones creaking with every movement, and carried herself slowly to her black cauldron that sat upon her kitchen counter. The hump on her back moved up and down under her black, tattered dress. She looked inside her cauldron and grunted. She reached inside her cupboard and took a tiny gray mouse from its trap. It squirmed in her gnarly hands until she sliced open its throat with a long, skinny razor blade. The blood from the mouse dribbled in the cauldron into a white, murky liquid, causing a slight flash, and smoke rose and fell as she spoke in very bad Latin. Ah, she said to herself, that should take care of him. She slowly walked back to her desk to pick out another name. The doorbell rang. Mrs. Grossman cursed under her breath. It better not be those horrible Kaladi children. Her heavy black boots pounded the floorboards hard, still not reaching the door any faster. I'll cook and eat every one of their fat little bodies and pick my teeth with their bones. She looked through the peephole. She saw a tall, dark-haired woman dressed in a business suit, her hair pulled tightly back and very white, clear skin. It was her daughter, Clarissa. The door opened quickly. A hand grabbed Clarissa and pulled her inside the apartment. She winced as she whirled inside, knocking a few books over, losing a high heel in the process. Get in, Mrs. Grossman screamed in a hoarse voice. Mother, Clarissa cried out, what are you doing? Mrs. Grossman was looking through the peephole, mumbling to herself. Mother! Clarissa found her left heel and sat in a chair filled with musty books. She carefully placed her foot in and stamped against the floorboards. Oh, hello, Clarissa. I don't want those horrible children near my door. God, are you still terrorizing those poor innocent children? Clarissa crossed her legs. You could get into terrible trouble. Those are not good, kindly children who help the elderly across the road. Mrs. Grossman ran her black fingernails through her stringy white hair. I'm telling you, Clarissa, those are little demon spawns. Then they would be right at home with you. Clarissa picked up a book entitled Farah's Demonology, How to Entice and Enslave the Modern Demon. Still dabbling in the occult there, Mother? Occult, Mrs. Grossman snapped, and yes... And yes, it's just as real as that accounting job you have. Hey, I didn't say giving people curses wasn't, and I like my job. It took me a long time to be head accountant. Mrs. Grossman took a few steps past her daughter. You meant it was silly. Would you like some tea? Well, it is that. Wait, do you still keep mice in your cupboard? Clarissa raised an eyebrow. Of course I do. Mrs. Grossman dragged her boots across the floorboards, causing an unpleasant sound inside Clarissa's already aching head. No, thank you, Mother. She made a face at the thought of mice and different bugs crawling over her mother's food in the kitchen. I'm having some anyway. What brings you here today, Clarissa? Mrs. Grossman called from the kitchen. It's not Saturday. You never visit on a weekday. Clarissa shrugged. I've come to bring your glasses. She took out a pair of silver Coke bottle frames from her purse. Mrs. Grossman returned to the living room, knocking over a stack of books. In her hands was a cup of black, murky tea, as thick as mud. There's nothing wrong with my eyes, she sulked, her upper lip curled up. My eyes. Are terrible, mother, and you know it. Last month, Dr. Sheridan told you your eyesight was one of the reasons for your fall. That's why I brought you these. Clarissa stood and bounced toward her mother's desk, placed them on a phone book. Clarissa's face fell. Oh, no. 
She quickly turned to Mrs. Grossman. You're using Aunt Della's phone book again, are you? Look, Clarissa, don't give me any speeches. Mrs. Grossman looked troubled. More wrinkles crossed her brow. Mother, I found you hovering in a dark corner without your clothes on last year, blubbering about that book trying to kill you. I thought I burned it. You can't destroy it, Mrs. Grossman giggled, slightly off a note. I know, I know. Clarissa threw her arms up. Once you use the book, you have to keep doing its bidding. I guess I never should have taken it at her wake 35 years ago, but I was so eaten up with getting revenge on your father. He ruined us, took all the money he made with the syrup company, left us for that woman. Yes, mother, it happened, and we made it out okay. You raised me perfectly, with the exception of mistrust of men. M mother? Clarissa lowered her perfectly drawn eyebrows, puzzled. Yes, Mrs. Grossman barely took herself from the thoughts of yesteryear. You copied this name from the phone book? Clarissa picked up a yellow notepad. She showed it to her mother. Yeah, so what? The name you wrote down is not Alva Peterson, but Alan Pratterson of 42 Shore Street. God, mother, use the damn glasses if you're going to do this stupid curse thing. Clarissa slammed the notepad back on the desk and picked up her purse. Where are you going? Mrs. Grossman whined. I'm late getting back to work. I only came on my lunch. She rushed to the door, opened it. I love you, Clarissa, Mrs. Grossman said. I know you do, mother. Clarissa turned to her, thought a moment, smiled. I love you too. I'll try to come over Saturday. Mrs. Grossman smiled back. Her rotting teeth were like barbed wire on fence posts. Be careful out there, darling. Bye, mother. Clarissa closed the door, and she was gone. Mrs. Grossman had to quickly get her mind back on her work. She went to her desk, sat down. She picked up her glasses, mulled over what Clarissa had said. She threw them in her trash can. Nothing wrong with my eyes, she scoffed. She took a crooked finger and flipped through several pages of the phone book. She heard a voice moan. All right, all right, she said to the phone book. A name is coming up. Danielle Gestling, 25 Fredericks Road, Hmm, let's stop her heart. She checked off the name by underlining it with a black marker, then copied it on her notepad. She went to the cauldron on her kitchen counter. From her cupboard, Mrs. Grossman removed a jar of crushed wasps and poured half of them into the white, murky liquid. The cauldron sizzled, then bubbled up. Mrs. Grossman dropped the jar of crushed wasps. It shattered into a thousand pieces under her feet, she clutched her chest with her gnarly hands and stopped breathing just as she fell to the tiled floor of her kitchen. In the phone book, a name underlined with black marker was Dana Grossman of 52 Fork Road. Wake up and take cover. Hurry about it, your slumber. It's the dawn of the dead, now hell is up and upon us. Can't trust no other. Your father or even mother Sisters or brothers Aunties, nephews, nieces or uncles Not even lovers Friends, associates or co-workers All out to hurt you Only thought on their mind is murder Gotta try to survive in these times of tribulation Prophesy within lines of biblical publication It's the time of the end As nation rise against nation Hasten up against Asian Doctors all against patients But now it doesn't matter the health erasure in Cause the dead's taking over the people and places 
Vigilant men, women and children, it's survival of the fittest How can it be survival when the dead is trying to kill us? Sounds like a contradiction depicting this hammer-ripping scene So I gotta be equipped to spit it like a lyric machine Whatever zombie demon with hollow tips like a flash of heat Let's make them squeamish and rush them like a blitzkrieg Quick, you wanna mistreat this? I'll leave you anemic Leave them heated a steaming pile of obese shit Back to fertilizer remotes you've been reduced to your school Fecal matter or just plain old doo-doo Walking around stank, stank, brain is decaying Authentic found blank, bank, places you stranging Wandering souls with no control of your functions Emotions and creatures with bottomless pits for stomachs What's this? Trap, I give it up just jet Grab strap and bust it, bust it, bust Quit shit, ain't fucking with dip set, but I create a little gap dip and then I'm set. Catch me if you can, like Tom and Leonardo. I lead and I follow, and we'll both be seeing tomorrow, motherfucker. Pumping the shotgun into bad guys But they rise so we're dumping and running But can't hide cause they smell hot Our flesh is what they dine on Our lives have no prize Mastercard can buy but Now a shotgun 1045 A revolver set 959 A crossbow 21079 A pair of new balance running shoes 89 75 for a bulletproof raid vest to save your chest, get two, you can pay less Ten bucks if you wanna beat them with vice grips But your eye skin and life damn right's priceless That's right, bitch, I ain't dying without a fight From my cold dead fingers, you'll be primed the mic This device that'll strike, dissect your pipes The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge Part 1 it is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. By thy long gray beard and glittering eye, now wherefore stops thou me? The bridegroom's doors are opened wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are met, the feast is set, mayst hear the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand. There was a ship, quoth he. Hold off, unhand me, gray beard loon, eftsoons his hand dropped he. He holds him with his glittering eye. The wedding guest stood still and listens like a three years child, the mariner hath his will. The wedding guest sat on a stone, he cannot choose but hear, and thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. The ship was cheered, the harbor cleared, merrily did we drop below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. The sun came up upon the left, out of the sea came he, and he shone bright and on the right went down into the sea. Higher and higher every day till over the mast at noon, the wedding guest here beat his breast, for he heard the loud bassoon. The bride hath paced into the hall, red as a rose is she. Nodding their heads before her goes the merry minstrelsy. The wedding guest, he beat his breast, yet he cannot choose but hear, and thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. And now the storm-blast came, and he was tyrannous and strong. He struck with his o'ertaking wings, and chased us south along with sloping masts and dripping prow, as who pursued with yell and blow still treads the shadow of his foe, and forward bends his head. The ship drove fast, loud roared the blast, and southward aye we fled. And now there came both mist and snow, and it grew wondrous cold, and iced, mast-high, came floating by, as green as emerald. 
and through the drifts the snowy cliffs did send a dismal sheen nor shapes of men nor beasts we ken the ice was all between the ice was here the ice was there the ice was all around it cracked and growled and roared and howled like noises in a swound at length did cross an albatross thorough the fog it came as it had been a christian soul we hailed it in god's name it ate the food it ne'er had eat and round and round it flew the ice did split with thunder fit the helmsman steered us through and a good south wind sprung up behind the albatross did follow and every day for food or play came to the mariner's hollow in mist or cloud on mast or shroud it perched for vespers nine whiles all the night through fog smoke white glimmered the white moonshine god save thee ancient mariner from the fiends that plague thee thus why look'st thou so with my crossbow i shot the albatross part two the sun now rose upon the right out of the sea came he still hid in mist and on the left went down into the sea and the good south wind still blew behind but no sweet bird did follow nor any day for food or play came to the mariner's hollow and i had done a hellish thing and it would work him well for all averred i had killed the bird that made the breeze to blow ah wretch said they the bird to slay that made the breeze to blow nor dim nor red like god's own head the glorious sun uprist then all averred i had killed the bird that brought the fog and mist twas right they say such birds to slay that bring the fog and mist the fair breeze blew the white foam flew the furrow followed free we were the first that had ever burst into that silent sea down dropped the breeze the sails dropped down twas sad as sad could be and we did speak only to break the silence of the sea all in a hot and copper sky the bloody sun at noon right up above the mast did stand no bigger than the moon day after day day after day we struck nor breath nor motion as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean water water everywhere and all the boards did shrink water water everywhere nor any drop to drink the very deep did rot o christ that ever this should be yea slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea about about in reel and rout the death fires danced at night the water like a witch's oils burnt green and blue and white and some in dreams assured were of the night spirit that plagued us so nine fathom deep he had followed us from the land of mist and snow and every tongue through utter drought was withered at the root we could not speak no more than if we had been choked with soot ah well a day what evil looks had i from old and young instead of the cross the albatross about my neck was hung there passed a weary time each throat was parched and glazed each eye a weary time a weary time how glazed each weary eye when looking westward i beheld a something in the sky at first it seemed a little speck and then it seemed a mist it moved and moved and took at last a certain shape i wist a speck a mist a shape i wist and still it neared and neared as if it dodged a water sprite it plunged and tacked and veered with throats unslaked with black lips baked we could nor laugh nor wail through utter drought all dumb we stood i bit my arm i sucked the blood and cried a sail a sail with throats unslaked with black lips baked agape they heard me call gramercy they for joy did grin and all at once their breath drew in as they were drinking all see see i cried she tacks no more hither to work us wheel without a breeze without a tide she steadies with upright keel 
The western wave was all aflame. The day was well nigh done. Almost upon the western wave rested the broad bright sun, when that strange shape drove suddenly betwixt us and the sun. And straight the sun was flecked with bars. Heaven's mother send us grace, as if through a dungeon grate he peered with broad and burning face. Alas, thought I, and my heart beat loud, how fast she nears and nears. Are those her sails that glance in the sun like restless gossamers? Are those her ribs through which the sun did peer as through a grate? And is that woman all her crew? Is that a death? And are there two? Is death that woman's mate? Her lips were red, her looks were free, her locks were yellow as gold, her skin was as white as leprosy, the nightmare life and death was she, who thicks man's blood with cold. The naked hulk alongside came, and the twain were casting dice. The game is done, I've won, I've won, quoth she, and whistles thrice. The sun's rim dips, the stars rush out, at one stride comes the dark. With far-heard whisper o'er the sea, off shot the spectre bark. We listened and looked sideways up, fear at my heart, as at a cup, my lifeblood seemed to sip. The stars were dim and thick the night, the steersman's face by his lamp gleamed white, from the sails the dew did trip, till clomb above the eastern bar the horned moon with one bright star within the nether tip. One after one by the star-dogged moon, too quick for groan or sigh, each turned his face with a ghastly pang and cursed me with his eye. Four times fifty living men, and I heard nor sigh nor groan. With heavy thump, a lifeless lump, they dropped down one by one. The souls did from their bodies fly, they fled to bliss or woe, and every soul it passed me by, like the whiz of my crossbow. Part 4 I fear thee, ancient mariner, I fear thy skinny hand, and thou art long and lank and brown, as is the ribbed sea-sand. I fear thee and thy glittering eye, and thy skinny hand so brown. Fear not, fear not, thou wedding guest, this body dropped not down. Alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. The many men so beautiful, and they all dead did lie, and a thousand, thousand slimy things lived on, and so did I. I looked upon the rotting sea, and drew my eyes away. I looked upon the rotting deck, and there the dead men lay. I looked to heaven and tried to pray, but wherever a prayer had gushed, a wicked whisper came and made my heart as dry as dust. I closed my lids, I kept them close, and the balls like pulses beat. For the sky and the sea, and the sea and the sky, lay like a load on my weary eye, and the dead were at my feet. The cold sweat melted from their limbs, nor rot nor reek did they. The look with which they looked on me had never passed away. An orphan's curse would drag to hell a spirit from on high. But oh, more horrible than that is the curse in a dead man's eye. Seven days, seven nights I saw that curse, and yet I could not die. The moving moon went up the sky, and nowhere did abide. Softly she was going up, and a star or two beside. Her beams bemocked the sultry main, like April hoarfrost spread. But where the ship's huge shadow lay, the charmed water burnt alway, a still and awful red. Beyond the shadow of the ship I watched the water snakes. They moved in tracks of shining white, and when they reared the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. Within the shadow of the ship I watched their rich attire. Blue, glossy green, and velvet black, they coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire. O oh, happy living things, no tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them unaware. Sure, my kind saint took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. 
The selfsame moment I could pray, and from my neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. Part 5 O sleep, it is a gentle thing, beloved from pole to pole. To Mary Queen the praise be given, she sent the gentle sleep from heaven that slid into my soul. The silly buckets on the deck that had so long remained. I dreamt that they were filled with dew, and when I awoke, it rained. My lips were wet, my throat was cold, my garments all were dank. Sure, I had drunken in my dreams, and still my body drank. I moved and could not fill my limbs, I was so light, almost, I thought that I had died in sleep and was a blessed ghost. And soon I heard a roaring wind, it did not come anear, but with its sound it shook the sails that were so thin and sere. The upper air burst into life, and a hundred fireflags sheen. To and fro they were hurried about, and to and fro, and in and out, the wan stars danced between. And the coming wind did roar more loud, and the sails did sigh like sedge. And the rain poured down from one black cloud, the moon was at its edge. The thick black cloud was cleft, and still the moon was at its side. Like waters shot from some high crag, the lightning fell with never a jag, a river steep and wide. The loud wind never reached the ship, yet now the ship moved on. Beneath the lightning and the moon, the dead men gave a groan. They groaned, they stirred, they all uprose, nor spake, nor moved their eyes. It had been strange, even in a dream, to have seen those dead men rise. The helmsman steered, the ship moved on, yet never a breeze up blew. The mariners all gan work the ropes, where they were wont to do. They raised their limbs like lifeless tools. We were a ghastly crew." The body of my brother's son stood by me, knee to knee. The body and I pulled at one rope, but he said not to me. I fear thee, ancient mariner. Be calm, thou wedding guest. T'was not those souls that fled in pain, which to their courses came again, but a troop of spirits blessed. For when it dawned, they dropped their arms, and clustered round the mast. Sweet sounds rose slowly through their mouths, and from their bodies passed. Around, around, flew each sweet sound, then darted to the sun. Slowly the sounds came back again, now mixed, now one by one. Sometimes a dropping from the sky, I heard the skylark sing. Sometimes all little birds that are, how they seemed to fill the sea and air with their sweet jargoning. And now t'was like all instruments, now like a lonely flute. And now it is an angel's song that makes the heavens be mute. It ceased. Yet still the sails made on a pleasant noise till noon, a noise like of a hidden brook in the leafy month of June, that to the sleeping woods all night singeth a quiet tune. Till noon we quietly sailed on, yet never a breeze did breathe. Slowly and smoothly went the ship, moved onward from beneath. Under the keel nine fathom deep, from the land of mist and snow, the spirit sled, and it was he that made the ship to go. The sails at noon left off their tune, and the ship stood still also. The sun, right up above the mast, had fixed her to the ocean. But in a minute she gan stir, with a short, uneasy motion, backwards and forwards half her length with a short, uneasy motion. Then like a pawing horse let go, she made a sudden bound. It flung the blood into my head, and I fell down in a swound. How long in that same fit I lay, I have not to declare. But ere my living life returned, I heard, and in my soul discerned two voices in the air. Is it he, quoth one, is this the man, by him who died on cross, with his cruel bow he laid full low the harmless albatross, the spirit who bideth by himself in the land of mist and snow, he loved the bird that loved the man who shot him with his bow. The other was a softer voice, as soft as honeydew, quoth he, the man hath penance done, and penance more will do. Part 6 
But tell me, tell me, speak again, thy soft response renewing. What makes that ship drive on so fast? What is the ocean doing? Still as a slave before his lord, the ocean hath no blast. His great bright eye most silently up to the moon is cast. If he may know which way to go, for she guides him smooth or grim. See, brother, see how graciously she looketh down on him. But why drives on that ship so fast, without or wave or wind? The air is cut away before, and closes from behind. Fly, brother, fly, more high, more high, or we shall be belated. For slow and slow that ship will go, when the mariner's trance is abated. I woke, and we were sailing on, as in a gentle weather. T'was night, calm night, the moon was high, the dead men stood together. All stood together on the deck, for a charnel dungeon fitter. All fixed on me their stony eyes, that in the moon did glitter. The pang, the curse, with which they died, had never passed away. I could not draw my eyes from theirs, nor turn them up to pray. And now this spell was snapped. Once more I viewed the ocean green, and looked far forth, yet little saw of what had else been seen. Like one that on a lonesome road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. But soon there breathed a wind on me, nor sound nor motion made. Its path was not upon the sea, in ripple or in shade. It raised my hair, it fanned my cheek, like a meadow gale of spring. It mingled strangely with my fears, yet it felt like a welcoming. Swiftly, swiftly flew the ship, yet she sailed softly too. Sweetly, sweetly blew the breeze, on me alone it blew. O oh, dream of joy, is this indeed the lighthouse top I see? Is this the hill? Is this the kirk? Is this mine own country? We drifted o'er the harbor bar, and I with sobs did pray, O oh, let me be awake, O oh God, or let me sleep alway. The harbor bay was clear as glass, so smoothly it was strewn, and on the bay the moonlight lay, and the shadow of the moon. The rock shone bright, the kirk no less that stands above the rock, the moonlight steeped in silentness the steady weathercock. And the bay was white with silent light, till rising from the same, full many ships that shadows were in crimson colors came. A little distance from the prow those crimson shadows were. I turned my eyes upon the deck, O oh Christ, what saw I there? Each course lay flat, lifeless, and flat, and by the holy rood, a man all light, a seraph man, on every course there stood. This seraph band each waved his hand, it was a heavenly sight. They stood as signals to the land, each one a lovely light. This seraph band each waved his hand, no voice did they impart. No voice, but oh, the silence sank like music on my heart. But soon I heard the dash of oars, I heard the pilot's cheer. My head was turned perforce away, and I saw a boat appear. The pilot and the pilot's boy, I heard them coming fast. Dear Lord in heaven, it was a joy the dead men could not blast. I saw a third, I heard his voice, it is the hermit good. He singeth loud his godly hymns that he makes in the wood. He'll shrieve my soul, he'll wash away the albatross's blood. Part 7 This hermit good lives in that wood which slopes down to the sea. How loudly his sweet voice he rears, he loves to talk with mariners that come from a far country. He kneels at morn, and noon, and eve, he hath a cushion plump. It is the moss that wholly hides the rotted old oak stump. The skiff boat neared, I heard them talk. Why, this is strange, I trow. Where are those lights so many and fair, that signal made but now? Strange by my faith, the hermit said, and they answered not our cheer. The planks looked warped, and see those sails, how thin they are and sear. 
I never saw aught like to them, unless perchance it were, brown skeletons of leaves that lag my forest brook along, when the ivy-tod is wet with snow, and the owlet whoops to the wolf below, that eats the she-wolf's young. Dear Lord, it hath a fiendish look, the pilot made reply. I am afeard. Push on, push on, said the hermit cheerily. The boat came closer to the ship, but I nor spake nor stirred. The boat came close beneath the ship, and straight a sound was heard. Under the water it rumbled on, still louder and more dread. It reached the ship, it split the bay, the ship went down like lead. Stunned by that loud and dreadful sound, which sky and ocean smote, like one that hath been seven days drowned my body lay afloat, but swift as dreams myself I found within the pilot's boat. Upon the whirl where sank the ship the boat spun round and round, and all was still, save that the hill was telling of the sound. I moved my lips, the pirate shrieked and fell down in a fit, the holy hermit raised his eyes and prayed where he did sit. I took the oars, the pilot's boy, who now doth crazy go, laughed loud and long, and all the while his eyes went to and fro. Ha, ha, quoth he, full plain I see, the devil knows how to row. And now, all in my own country, I stood on the firm land. The hermit stepped forth from the boat, and scarcely he could stand. Oh, shrieve me, shrieve me, holy man, the hermit crossed his brow. Say quick, quoth he, I bid thee say, what manner of man art thou? Forthwith this frame of mine was wrenched with a woeful agony, which forced me to begin my tale, and then it left me free. Since then, at an uncertain hour, that agony returns. Until my ghastly tale is told, this heart within me burns. I pass like night from land to land, I have strange power of speech. That moment that his face I see, I know the man that must hear me, to him my tale I teach. What loud uproar bursts from that door, the wedding guests are there. But in the garden bower the bride and the bridesmaids singing are. And hark the little vesper bell which biddeth me to prayer. O wedding guest, this soul hath been alone on a wide, wide sea, so lonely twas that God himself scarce seemed there to be. O sweeter than the marriage feast, tis sweeter far to me, to walk together to the kirk with a goodly company, to walk together to the kirk and all together pray, while each to his great father bends, old men and babes and loving friends, the youths and maidens gay. Farewell, farewell, but this I tell to thee, thou wedding guest. He prayeth well who loveth well both man and bird and beast. He prayeth best who loveth best all things both great and small. For the dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all. The mariner, whose eye is bright, whose beard with age is hoar, is gone, and now the wedding guest turned from the bridegroom's door. He went like one that hath been stunned, and is of sense forlorn. A sadder and a wiser man, he rose the morrow morn.